get into this last week, but we did an ordination. We're going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the, bi- uh, through the Bible, yes, in one sense, but to, today we're just going through Matthew. I would love to say I could preach the whole Bible verse by verse by God's grace, so pray that that will happen one day. Let's go to Matthew chapter 12. Today we're going to learn about the Lord of the Sabbath. Somebody say, Lord of the Sabbath. And I just want to thank you for coming out today. I know uh, many are on vacation, or some wish they were on vacation, but uh, you know, many are on vacation doing their thing. So thank you for coming to the house of God, and don't forget to, as you celebrate, celebrate safely. Amen. Because we don't need to memorialize you after this weekend, right? We don't want to do that. And I always say that seriously because my sister died drinking and driving. It's not worth it, friends. It's not worth it. So make sure you enjoy responsibly. Let's go to Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. Lord of the Sabbath starts us off right here. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And if you see right there, I have the scriptures relating to the Sabbath in the, uh, on the notes, on our app, and on the website, so you can see that. Jesus, through the Old Testament, had commanded them to keep the Sabbath and to not work on that day. Now, remember, I believe Jesus has always been the one speaking to us on behalf of the Father, so I believe it's Jesus that met with Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, Jesus is in the flesh walking with his disciples, and the disciples are violating the rules of the Sabbath. The rules of the Sabbath were so um, touchy and so specific that even if you gathered wood on the Sabbath, they would consider that work, and someone did, and they got stoned. Very serious. And so the disciples are walking through the fields of grain, and they're taking their hands and running it through the top portion and harvesting the grain to eat it, which by definition is work. It's harvest. They were not even to gather manna on the Sabbath because God wouldn't give it. They were to take double on the day before. So this is how serious it is. And now we see that Jesus is letting it slide. We got a problem here, folks. Is Jesus breaking his own rules? Is he saying one thing and doing another? Now, people who naively read the scriptures may point to this and say, see, here's a contradiction. The new covenant actually violates the old covenant. It can't be the same God. People that are today Jewish would see it that way. They would honestly take the position of the Pharisees and be like, if Jesus was really our Messiah, he's not going to break the law, nor is he going to try to get away with something. He's going to keep it perfectly. But there's some things that people miss when they look at this story as well as the Jews back then. Number one, people do not know who Jesus is. Jesus is the lawgiver. Jesus is himself above the law. Now let me give you an example to this. Jesus will fulfill the law and perfectly obey it, but that doesn't mean he has to always go by it. For us to kill an innocent person, that is murder. God can kill innocent people, and it's called judgment. Do you understand the difference? No, some of you don't. I know this is blinking over here. (laughs) Don't watch the light show. We'll figure that out, right? But if you have to reset it, go ahead. It's always something going on with these technical things, right? But just track with me here. I was just debating with someone online about abortion. 
And they bring up this passage in Numbers that says, if a woman has committed adultery, God will strike her and the child. And so she says, well, God's with abortion because he does it. Number one, that's ignorance. That's showing a curse and then saying, let's do it as a blessing. If, if honestly, God, and we're just going to reset the lights, if God is showing us through the story of numbers a child dying, it is because of a curse, not because of a blessing. We shouldn't use that as an excuse. That's number one. But number two, when God kills, is it murder? No, because God is bringing judgment. All of us as humanity are born sinful because of Adam and Eve. It's not does do we deserve mercy. No, it's we deserve wrath, and why haven't we all gotten it? So the question isn't why isn't God doing great things for everybody. The question is why does God do good things for anybody? So some of us look at the problem of evil. There's not really a problem of evil. It's a problem of good. Why does good even exist? We only deserve evil. But God is above his law. Let me give you another example. God is above his law when it comes to telling lies. You say, oh, we're not supposed to tell lies, and God can't lie. You know, God's not a man. But God allows people to believe false things about him and doesn't correct them. Where we would have to clarify and say, well, 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 that's not necessarily so. Jesus in the New Testament actually showed up and after his resurrection, pretended to be a gardener. As he was traveling on the way to uh, Emmaus, he pretended to be somebody else. He actually shape-shifted. This is going to blow your mind. Okay? And so he actually, at another time, allowed spirits to go and bring deception to a, a group of false prophets. And so you may say, well, gee, you know, God is telling lies and God can't lie in that sense. Well, that's true, but God can allow lies to exist and God can stand behind it and go, if you're so dumb to believe that, I'm not going to tell you the truth. Where you and I would be responsible to have to tell you the truth. God can veil himself. God can hide himself when he wants to. And so God can do things that you might think are a little bit sketchy and think, well, God's playing by another set of rules. Well, God's our creator, and his righteous standard is above our standard. That's first of all. But the second thing is that we're going to learn is that Jesus is actually not bending the rules for the sake of breaking the law. He's bending the rules because now he's changing the covenant. And as he gave the first covenant with a set of guidelines, another covenant is going to come. And now he's saying, I'm going to show you how arbitrary some of these rules were, but I used them for a season. But I'm going to show you, he's going to actually show you, that there was even contradictions within the law because it was incomplete. The new covenant is better. Are you ready? Let's go to verse 3. He said, he answered, have you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. So now he's going to show them a contradiction. He's like, you guys love David? Yeah, David never really broke the law, right, except when he did all that crazy stuff with the adultery. But, you know, he was a person after God's heart. He wrote a whole entire chapter in Psalms about the law. But hold on. He's going to point out a story where there's a contradiction with David. There was a time he was so hungry that he asked to eat the communion bread. Think about that. And in those days, that holy bread, the table of showbread, was not meant to be eaten except by the priest. But David wasn't a priest, nor were his people. And so technically, David should have died. That's what Jesus is saying. 
He's like, you guys are really into the law. You really love the law. You really think this is how we're going to be saved? Well, look at David. David got hungry and started eating the communion bread. What happened to him? Nothing. Well, why didn't he get stoned? Why didn't he get in trouble like the guy picking up wood? Because God had a greater plan for David than for that law of the bread. So God can supersede his laws when he wants to. That's what Jesus is showing. See, Jesus is a debater. Some of you guys don't like to debate. All you like to do is emote. Don't be a snowflake in this generation. Don't just emote. No logic. Know how to share your viewpoint. Don't, you have to be a jerk about it, but you need to know how to get to the nitty-gritty. Jesus takes their law and their stories, and that's in 1 Samuel 21, and he says, hey, here's the contradiction right here. Should we stone David? Then he's going to go one step further. He's actually going to find a flaw in the system. Watch this. He says, or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? He goes, hold on. You guys probably never thought about it. But while you guys are not working, the priests are working. They're slaughtering animals. They're doing work on the Sabbath. Now, you might say, well, Jesus is just contradicting himself. This is just a big old mess. Do I keep the law? Do I don't keep the law? Does Jesus love his law? Does he not love his law? See, this is where you have to understand. Number one, as I shared with you, Jesus is the lawgiver. He can do whatever he wants. And number two, the old covenant was incomplete. That's all he's doing right here is he is now saying, I, am, as the lawgiver, am able to change the law however I want. That means he can give us a law, God could give us a law to jump on one foot, you know, your right foot ten times and say, I love you, Jesus, I love you, Jesus. He could give us that law because he has the right to do it. He's our law giver. And then number two, he's going to show that the laws that he gave in the Old Testament are incomplete. These ceremonies are actually incomplete, that there has to be a fulfillment of them. And so then he says in verse 6, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. <laughs> this is where it gets exciting. You see, in their mind, the center of their religion was the temple. And before they had the temple was the tabernacle, which was just a tent version of the temple. Okay, So the center of their religion from the time of Moses being delivered from Egypt there in the wilderness was the Ark of the Covenant, was the priesthood, was all of these feast days. And eventually Solomon, David's son, builds this amazing temple. And now Jesus is just going to summarize it all and be like, hey, the very thing you think is the most central to everything you do, how great you believe your temple is, guess what? Something greater than the temple is here. That's what he's going to tell you. I'm here, y'all. The one who gave Moses the blueprints, he's saying, I'm here now. And these boys, they can do what they want because they're not breaking the new covenant law that I'm now bringing them into. We're now going to fulfill and perfectly bring it to an end and then abolish Fulfill comes first, then abolish comes second. Jesus fulfills perfectly the law by himself, not breaking any of the laws, but he begins to teach and allow some around him to enter into the new covenant that he's teaching. And then he dies, resurrects, ascends to heaven, and then he, he, he gives them the entire new covenant, and that's what we call the New Testament. Now look at verse 7. He said, if you had known what these words mean... 
I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. That's Hosea 6.6. Because, now get this everybody, at the end of the Old Testament, God literally is just throwing up his hands through the prophets going, I'm pretty much done with you guys. Like, I love you, and I'm not going to forget about you, and I'm going to have a plan for you, but, like, I'm just going to stop talking to you guys for a while. Like, he literally stops speaking to them from the prophets for 400 years. And Hosea is one of those last prophets, and, and basically what he's saying to them is, you guys failed the old covenant so terribly, I'm not going to talk to you till I come and fulfill it and start this whole thing over again with the new covenant. Now, that sounds a lot different than the way we look at mankind. We look at mankind as, you know, pretty much good, just needs a little help around the edges. No, God looks us at us as, us, at us as a total mess. And he's been working with the people, working with the people. And this is the thing. Even though God transcends time, he is emotionally invested in time with us. Like he's with us feeling his emotions. God has emotions. You guys understand that. Even though he knew he was going to flood Noah's generation, when he sees what they're doing, it, the Bible says he repents. It regrets him that he even made mankind. I believe that's real because he's not only transcended in, in past, present, and future sense, but he's also imminent in our moments. He's feeling what we feel. He relates to us, and then he has his own unique experiences. And at the time of Hosea, he's, he's telling them, guys, I am done with your sacrifices. I am done with your temple. That's why when it gets destroyed and then it gets rebuilt back up as they come out of the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity, he doesn't even put his glory there. There's no glory there. But yet he prophesied that the second temple was going to have greater glory than the first temple. The first temple came with a lot of signs and wonders, and the presence of God there was so strong with Solomon. The priests fell on their face. The kabod or the glory of God was there. They couldn't even minister. Second temple, no fireworks, nothing. Why? Because he's pretty much done with them, but he makes a problem. When I say done with them, he's, they're still his chosen people, but done with the old covenant in that way of doing things. Let me clarify because we believe that God has a plan for the Jewish people, but he's done doing it that way, okay? But he makes a prophecy that says, I'm going to personally come to this second temple, and that glory will be greater than the first glory. That's why Jesus is saying that now. When Jesus went to the temple, he is literally now saying, I'm fulfilling the greater glory. That's why the temple gets destroyed in 70 AD, and God is done with the old covenant. The promises to the Jewish people and their, and their, um, their country still remain, but he is done operating through the 613 laws. Are they valuable? Do they inspire us and give us examples? Absolutely. We don't throw away the Old Testament, but Jesus is being clear here. There is something greater than the Old Testament. That's him as a person. And what we call the New Testament is going to turn into the kingdom of God to come. And who knows what the rules and laws of that kingdom are going to be. We may go back to being vegetarians. That may be a rule. Now some are like, well, there's going to be a lot of sacrifices and things going on. Yeah, but that's for the millennial reign. What happens after that thousand years when he creates the new heavens and earth? We may go back to being vegetarians. Also, we won't be having sex anymore. Many of you are going to be unhappy about that. That command is gone. Be fruitful and multiply. So what I'm saying is there's actually going to technically be three covenants, the one in the old, the one we now call the new, the church age, even running through the millennial kingdom. 
And then after that, forever and forever and forever, there's going to be something unique going on. No sex. So that, like I said, it's not happening. We won't need to preach anymore. There's no lost people. Because even in millennial reign, there's things to do with the gospel because the children are being raised at that time of the nations. And so what we see is that Paul in the New Testament is going to summarize these thoughts. And a lot of times people think, well, Paul and Jesus, they don't talk the same. You know, they're different. Because Paul, if you notice in the New Testament, doesn't quote Jesus verbatim. A lot of times he's just saying thoughts. And that's another argument that the Jewish people say. They say, even if Jesus wasn't our Messiah, he was a good Jew. Maybe a little bit revolutionary. Some of the Jews at that time didn't like him. But he certainly wasn't starting something new as a new covenant. This is like what Rabbi Shateach, where's Jared at? Shmuley, get Jared for me. Rabbi Shmuley has a debate with Michael Brown. I want you guys to listen to if you're interested in Jewish Christian dialogue. That's what someone like him would say. He was a good Jew, but not a revolutionary. So who messed up? Rabbi who? Shabayak? What is that name? Shmuley Boteach. Let's give it up for Jared. He's helping me out today. Thank you. Write that name down, Shmuley. Talk to Jared if you want the debate because Reverend Rabbi Shmuley debates Michael Brown on who was Jesus. And some Jews would say, well, he was a good Jew, but he wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't anybody more special than that. And Paul corrupted Christianity. Paul messed it up. Because if you look at Jesus' words, Jesus isn't saying all that Paul says. Let me show you what Paul says. Let's go to Galatians. Go to Galatians chapter 4. By the time Paul starts dealing with the new covenant and laws, he actually gets a lot uh, more verbal than Jesus even did with his disciples. Because remember, Jesus said, I'll send the Holy Spirit and teach you more at a, latter t- at a later time. And so here comes those later revelations. Go to Galatians chapter 3, rather. Galatians chapter 3 says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by obeying what you hear? Can we have the scripture up for them, please? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God, do his, uh, does God give his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by you believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now keep going, verse 10. He's basically saying, did you become a Christian by following Moses' law or did you have faith in the gospel? Verse 10, now watch this. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Wow. So when Jesus is with them, he's starting to break forth this new covenant, and he's saying, I'm allowing this to happen because I'm going to bring in a new covenant, but it looks like he's pretty chill with what those people are still doing as Jewish people. By the time of Paul, 50, 60 AD, he's saying, if this is how you're still living like the Jewish people by their law for righteousness sake, you are under a curse. And then he says, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Can you put that up there for us, please? 
chapter 3, verse 10. Jesus is introducing a new covenant. It's not going to contradict. It's going to complement. He's the one who gave the first covenant. It's his covenant. He can do whatever he wants with it. What he's going to let it do is die a slow death and then once and for all call it kaput. When is it finally over and the Jewish people now know and they see it by, by looking at something, they now know it's fully abolished. What is that event? No. The, the temple is destroyed. The crucifixion is what sealed the new covenant. But when did the Jewish person now know this way of doing things is over when their temple was gone? You know, that's what I'm saying. It died a slow death. They were supposed to know at the cross, but they didn't. Most of them didn't. But when were they supposed to surely know we can't do this anymore? When it was destroyed. Now, the day he was crucified, the veil rent in two, and the glory of God was now uh, able to come into all of us. So technically, that can be true. But remember my question asked, how did the Jewish people, how were they supposed to know that the covenant has now been abolished? Not a new covenant has started. That wasn't the question. The question is, how did they know their old one was abolished when the temple was destroyed? So since 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, can any Jew be a Jew like Moses according, according to the Old Testament? No. You don't have the central aspect of your entire religion. Now, the Bible does say as a sign to us of Jesus' coming that they will start to rebuild the third temple. And yet, it's not going to go any better for them. The Antichrist will come. He will defile it again. And then at that time, Jesus Christ is going to come. You know, there's a seven-year period there. But just to summarize that, as we're getting closer to the end, they're going to rebuild a temple. And that is actually out of rebellion because they're still thinking they don't need the Messiah who made the new covenant. But thankfully, after the Antichrist defiles the third temple, God says their eyes are opened, and now all Israel will be saved. They'll start repenting and, and, and get a clue because those will be the last three and a half years of tribulation, and 144,000 of them will be saved, 12,000 from each tribe. They'll be the end-time evangelists. It's going to be awesome to watch from heaven. <laughs> you don't want to be here watching it for yourself. It will be cool to watch from heaven. Can I hear an amen? Now, going back to the notes, I'm going to read that passage again with the theology now you have learned, and then I'm going to end with the crescendo, which I haven't read yet, and I hope that you get it. Chapter 12, verses 1 and onward. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or on the Sabbath duty in the temple, excuse me, or haven't you read in the law? that priests on the Sabbath during the temple desecrate the Sabbath yet are innocent. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not condemn the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's go to understanding the Son of Man. Go to Daniel chapter 7, please. 
A lot of times people think when Jesus calls himself the son of man, he is giving himself only the position of being a human. And that son of God is the position of being God. That is absolutely not true. The son of man is a title of God being man. God being man. It's a title of divinity. Yes, it includes being a man. The word man is in there. So yes, it's a man. But God is man. That's the revelation. It's not just man, the son of man. Here's just an ordinary person walking around. No, according to the Bible, the unique son of man is God as man. God in the flesh. Let me show you in Daniel. Go to Daniel. Let's start. Let's go down a little bit. Daniel chapter 7. Exciting. Come on. Are you guys excited to learn these things? Go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. In my vision at night, this is the same one who was in the lion's den, right, Daniel? You guys know who Daniel is, amen? Okay. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. That's where that title came from. It's not like he's just walking around going, I'm just a dude. When Jesus used the term son of man is Lord of the Sabbath, he is literally saying, I am Yahweh Shabbat. I am the God of Israel over the Sabbath. Now do you understand why they wanted to kill him? That's blasphemy. But it's not blasphemy if it's true. If it's true, we should bow down and worship him. In my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? The Father. And was led into his presence. He, talking about the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language did what? Worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. According to the Ten Commandments, how many gods can you worship? One. Now we're worshiping the Son of Man in the presence of the Ancient of Days. Are there two gods? No, two persons sharing the same nature. And as we will learn at the end of Matthew, the Holy Spirit shares the same nature. That's why the Bible forces us to be Trinitarians. The Bible is not a, a Unitarian God like many false religions have, like Islam. Like he's just one person as God. That is not true. And Islam even comes from the Judeo-Christian faith and twists the scriptures because when you look at these scriptures, these are confounding to the Jewish people. Just go to the next chapter. Go to chapter 8, verse 1. Just scroll down. You went way too fast, sir. You went way, 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 way too fast. You got to go way back up. Go back up, please. Go, oh, sorry. Uh, chapter 7, verse 15. That was my fault. 7, verse 15. There you go. Look at what David says, uh, Daniel says after he, saw, he sees all of this. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind did what? Disturbed me. So when I talk to Jewish people, and they're like, you know what? You Christians, you, you took our scriptures, and you messed it all up. You made God a trinity. We believe like Muslims that God is just one person. I bring them right back to this scripture and say, why in the world was Daniel troubled? Why was Daniel troubled? Well, it wasn't just he saw the vision of the, old, uh, the end times. He saw in the end times the Son of Man coming with the Father and the Son of Man being worshipped. 
That's what really bothered him. He was cool with all this judgment going on. He understood that. But what really rocked his mind was seeing a person that looked like him be worshipped like his God. Isn't that amazing? If we go back to the notes, please, we see something very special. Jesus says he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So what does that mean? If the Sabbath was one of the key features of the Old Testament Jewish religion, then what is he really saying? He's saying, I'm Lord of the Jewish people. And not only that, because the Jewish people only believed in one God, the creator of the universe, who chose them, that he is actually now saying, I am the Lord of the universe. So the God who created everything and rested on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, is Jesus Christ right here in front of us. That's the revelation. (laughs) I love that. I don't see how people can read the Bible and not get the impression that Jesus is more than a good man or a good teacher. The only way around it is they try to say our scriptures are corrupted. The Jewish people will say, now we're corrupting Jesus by Paul. Or the Muslims will say, they've added things in here. Jesus, who walked the earth, really didn't say things like he was Yahweh of the Sabbath. That's not true. Our most ancient manuscripts have the most boldest statements of Jesus. That statement right there was for all to hear that God was now among them. Now you would think if that were to be true, they would start worshiping him. But what we're going to see now is they want to kill him. Let's go to verse 9. Matthew chapter 12, verse 9. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, did they learn anything in the verses prior? No. They're now trying to catch him to break the Sabbath personally because he didn't. It was his disciples. Remember, he's going to fulfill the law perfectly, but he's going to allow some things to start to change in his disciples' lives. So now they want to see, man, we got to get something with him. Let's see if he's going to do work on the Sabbath. Okay, okay, how can we consider something work? Let's get something here that's work. Okay, maybe healing is work. That's literally what they're asking him. Is it? Against God's law to heal people on God's day. Isn't that just a stupid question? But that's, that's, that's what happens when you miss the teachings of Christ. You ask questions like that. And I get these questions all the time when I go to high schools and I talk to even smart people, colleges, you know. I'll say, God is the creator, and from him everything has been created. And then somebody would be like, hey, hey, who created God? And I'm like, did you not just hear what I said? He is the creator. If God has a creator, then he's not God. And then if every God has to have a creator, then there's no first God creator because it's going to keep going infinitely regressing. You have to have a first domino to get all the other dominoes. That's why in philosophy they call it the prime mover. Who is the one that starts all the motion? Who is the one that pushes everything? Who is the one that creates everything? That is what we are calling God. To now say who creates, that is stupid. But yet that is so like in people's minds. And some of you might be like, man, I thought that was a good question. That's because you don't know how to think logically. You haven't got a Christian worldview yet. And remember, science and logic is based on our God and his mind. 
The Bible says, in the beginning was the word, logos, was logic, and that logic was with God. And the logic was God, and he became flesh, he dwelt among us. So the word, the mind, the expression of the Father is seen in Jesus. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus. Every single one of them. So those of you who want to skip coming to church because you've got finals or skip, that is the dumbest thing you could ever do. Seek first the kingdom of God. If you're thinking, man, you you got to skip church because you got to have your business prosper, you're just basically saying, devil, pimp slap me and rob me and steal from me. Put God first in all you do because it only leads to more success, more wisdom, more rest and wise decisions in your life. So they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Verse 11, he said to them, If any one of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So like they even knew they could bend the rules of the Sabbath and technically do work if an animal was dying or in danger or if their child had gotten hurt. They could do things on the Sabbath with that in mind. As long as they weren't flippantly just breaking the law, gathering wood like we see in the scripture. But if there was an emergency, if there was some reason, could they do it? Yes. And he is basically saying now, All of you guys are in that state of emergency. He's basically saying humanity is broken, and I'm coming now to start a new covenant that you need, and you need this. Of course it's lawful for me to heal on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out. Hallelujah. How many know he's still a healer? So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. Now watch. Let's get the conclusion of this because we're going to move on to another subject. After the Jews, because Matthew's kind of painting the picture here that the Jews have been a part of this whole conversation with Jesus. That they were there when he was, you know, picking the grain fields. And then as Jesus went to church, Sabbath, the same ones are there. You're kind of supposed to get this idea that they're tracking with Jesus. They're stalking him on Facebook to see what he's doing, right? After all of this, what is their conclusion? Verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. There you go. That's what religion will lead to every time. That's what pride will lead to every time. You will think in yourself, I'm smarter than God. That's what you literally will think. These Jewish people thought that they knew more than the one who gave them the law. Jesus, the one who gave them the law, is there and is explaining it and is showing even in their own writings the loopholes that were already in it, thus needing a new covenant, showing that it couldn't save. All of this is happening while he's healing, doing miracles, and instead of humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God, they become prideful and they start resisting him, and then now they're setting their path to crucify him. Now, just before we just, you know, just look down on them and say those stupid Jewish people, how could they be so naive? Let us just stop and look at our lives and ask ourselves this question. How many times have we put our wisdom above God And then when God showed us his truth and wisdom, we not only said we don't want it, we resisted and pushed it back. 
And I always tell this story because I think it just makes so much sense as a little human video, and I would encourage the youth to do it as well. It's the story of the girl asking Jesus into her heart. And so Jesus comes home with her. All you need is two people, Jesus and the girl. That's all you need. And the girl comes home. She goes, Jesus, I'm so glad you're in my heart now. You're in my life. And she starts talking to Jesus. She pulls out her Bible. But then all of a sudden, her friends call. And her friends say, let's do something that's, you know, against God's word. Maybe go out and hang out with boys, and she's not supposed to do that. Or, you know, let's go get drunk or something. And, and as she starts to go, Jesus starts tapping her on the shoulder. And Jesus shows her the Bible, and, and, and he's pointing to it. And, you know, he's you know, talking about praying, hanging out. Maybe, you know, let's eat together. Let's fellowship. And, and she's like, no, Jesus, we'll do that when I get back. We'll do that when I get back, Jesus. You're just good here on Sundays or when I need you before I lay me down to sleep. You know, I'm going to pray that little prayer for, for my soul to keep, you know. And Jesus, you know, just keeps coming and come on, let's hang out. You know, it's not saying the words, but you get the point. And eventually she, she throws down her Bible. She takes a hammer out and then she nails Jesus' hands and then she nails Jesus' feet. And she says, you stay there, Jesus. And then she walks out into sin. Isn't that what we do? When we sleep with our girlfriend or boyfriend before we're married, you stay there, Jesus. When we don't tithe or give because we think we work too hard for it, man. The church don't need it. Church is fine. Don't need to give. Or when we're bitter, unforgiving, they don't deserve my forgiveness. I mean, look at what they did to me. I'm not Jesus. I'm not perfect. Man, I'm not going to forgive them. Are we not doing the same exact things the Jewish people did? Because I don't know about you, but I see myself as the enemy of Jesus before I became Christ, before his mercy came on my life. So let's not forget that. And even now as Christians, we can forget what God is doing because I do believe in backsliding, and I believe that's what even pastors can do. Leaders can do that. Jesus, I married the wrong one. This woman in my church, she's the right one. I've watched pastors have affairs with leaders in their church and just tell Jesus to stay there on the pulpit where they get to do their song and dance on Sundays. See, the question isn't, is Jesus the Lord of the Sabbath? That's really not the question. Jesus is secure in his identity. As I've said before, it's not like he's a contestant on American Idol, and he's like saying, vote for me so I can please be the Lord of the Sabbath. No, he's telling them, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. That's not the question. The question is, is he the Lord of your Sabbath? Is he the Lord of your religion? Is he the Lord of your days on and off? Is he the Lord of your paycheck? Is he the Lord of your vacations? Is he the greater thing than this temple? Is he your all in all? I think that's where we have to see this story here and apply it to our lives and never forget it lest we go into the flesh out of religion and crucify our Lord Jesus Christ or in one sense deny him. Let's keep going. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. The Bible is teaching us today, isn't it? Amen. Got real. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. So he knows they're going to kill him, but his time's not up yet. So he's like, I'm aware that you guys want to kill me, so I'm going to go over here away from you. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He's our healer. Amen. Amen. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. 
Now notice this. He's going to explain why he keeps secrets. Why isn't Jesus just announcing to the whole entire world, I'm your Messiah, I'm your God. Look, I heal people. Everybody see this? And then keep breaking nuggies on them about the new covenant and just blow their mind. Why is he withdrawing all the time? And why is he, as you see in other stories, when he heals people, he says, don't tell anybody. Don't just go to the priest, do your rituals for being considered clean, and go on, man. Don't tell them about me and what I'm doing. Isn't that kind of opposite of the Great Commission? Like, go tell the world about Jesus. Go to every highway and byway. Why is he in secret? Why is he not promoting himself? He is now going to explain it. He's going to quote from Isaiah. He says, here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. This is the Father speaking. And remember, that happened at baptism. The Holy Spirit came down, and the Father said, this is my son. Amen. Can I hear an amen to that? That's the Trinity right there. Can I show you the Trinity in one phrase? I will put my spirit on him. Did you guys see it? Would you highlight that, please? I will put my spirit on him. Who is the I? Who is the spirit? Who is the him? Jesus. Did you see the Trinity? You will see the Trinity all throughout the Bible if you're looking for it. This is who our God is. The Father and the Spirit and the Son are not the same person. Sometimes the Bible seems like when they say, I am one, me and the Father are one, people take that to mean like literally one. No, my wife and I are one in purpose and in in identity as being married, but we're two separate persons. The Father, Son, and Spirit are one in their purpose and their identity as being God, and they share the same nature, but they're not the same person. The I speaking here is not... You know, God being a ventriloquist going, hi, Joe, I'm going to put my spirit on you. Oh, you mean this right here? Yeah, I'm going to put my spirit on you. That is literally what oneness Pentecostals believe. Not only do their women not cut their hair, put on makeup, and wear long skirts and have to be sweating outside all the time. I feel bad for them. Um, Not only do they do all that, but they have the wrong idea of who who the God of the Bible is. They say God is one person, that's sometimes the Father, sometimes the Son, and sometimes the Spirit. So according to them, this is literally like just what I said. I'm talking to myself, and then I have my other voice here, and then I'm putting the Spirit on me. That is not what the Bible is saying. The Father is speaking, and he's saying, I'm going to put my Spirit, the Holy Spirit, on Jesus, on him. Now watch what happens here. And he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Well, hold on, Joe. I thought he's out in the streets preaching at times. I thought sometimes he is quarreling or debating. And in John chapter 7, verse 37, he cries out on the last greatest day of the Feast of Booths and the temple, uh, the, the, at the front of the temple, which is a, a festival when they would all remember when they lived in booths or tab- tabernacles. He cries out. He goes, is anyone thirsty? Let them come unto me and drink. But is he contradicting himself? No, no, look, look at what's going on here. It says, he will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. What that's talking about is he's not going to be a statesman. Jesus is not going to stand in front of Jerusalem, cry out every day, and have debates with the Jewish rabbis on whether or not he's the Messiah. 
He may at times cry out. He may at times quarrel a little bit. But he's not going to do that at his, as his modus operandi, as his mode of operation. His mode of operation, if you notice, is it's preach a little, go hide a lot. Preach a little, go hide a lot. And then what is he doing when he's hiding a lot? He's teaching his disciples. That's why when we learned in Matthew chapter 5, it says he called his disciples unto himself. He's not in Jerusalem trying to pick a fight, be in the arenas. Even his brothers wanted him to do that, if you remember. They said, why don't you go to the temple and just show yourself to everybody? And he said, because you guys always think like that. That shows how carnal you are. I'm not here to do it like that. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That means even if you're just bent over and it's just about ready to be over for you, or your, your flame is dying out, he's not going to give up on you till he, has he, till he has brought justice rather through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their what? Their hope. There's another statement of divinity. In whose name? In Jesus' name. You see, the Father could have us all say, Father, save me. And that could be the way of being saved. But how are we saved in the New Testament? Jesus saved me. Jesus is Lord. We could have to confess, Father is Lord to be saved because the Father is Lord, Jesus is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. But who must you confess to be saved as Lord? Jesus is Lord. So we call this right here the messianic secret. That Jesus is hiding himself from the people until his crucifixion. And then in Matthew 28, now he's going to say, take the lid off this thing. Go to all the nations, preach, and tell the whole world about me. Now, some theologians talk about this and try to decide why is he doing this at this time. I believe it's because of judgment. I believe God is judging the Jewish people by saying, I'm giving you all of my time and attention but you have to come and get it if you want it. I'll give you a taste, but you have to go deeper if you want it. And when the vast majority of them reject him, he is right in saying, you never really wanted me. You only just wanted a show. And that's why I can show you with the, uh, the sign of Noah comes up in a little bit. But that's where I, I think he's going there. Let's keep going. The Bible then talks about him casting out demons. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Remember, not all spirits make you sick, but these did. So don't think every time you're sick you have a spirit, but some could come from a spirit. So just cover your bases and go, leave me, Satan, in Jesus' name. Amen. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David, which is the term for the Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the devil, in other words, that the prince, the prince of demons, that this fellow man, this fellow drives out demons. Let me read that again. Forgive me. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So they're saying, you're demon-possessed. That's why you're casting out demons. Aren't they just crazy? They're crazy. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided. Against himself. How can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So he gets sassy with them. So he's quarreling there. But remember, this is not like his agenda. He's not looking for this. But he is answering the call to, to, the, to, to give them a reason to believe after they question him. 
How can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do you, your people, drive out demons? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Let's just finish this thought. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can plunder the house? Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. We're going to stop here for today. We'll get into the rest next week. But do you notice the Trinity again? The Son of Man is not the Holy Spirit. Don't you see that as a problem for anybody who believes in a oneness theology? Because why did Jesus separate himself from the Spirit? If they were both the same person, then how would there be a difference? Jesus is clear. In this time, at this age, you can say whatever you want about me and still come back to a place of salvation. But if you have a problem with the Holy Spirit, you'll never be able to be saved. That's why it's the unpardonable sin. What is the sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Not accepting his conviction, not accepting his truth. And wouldn't it just make sense? If you never accept the Holy Spirit's conviction or his signs and his plan for your life, then you can't be saved. Because how else are you going to be saved without the Holy Spirit? That's why Jesus is teaching them, you can't do this without the Spirit. The Spirit has to be present for you to even get saved. In John 3, it says you're born of the Spirit. And so what is the problem that he's telling these guys, these Pharisees, is that you don't recognize the Holy Spirit. And so he says, Satan can't beat up Satan and expect Satan's kingdom to prosper. God's not going to beat up God and expect his kingdom to prosper. Now, let me just answer this quick question that some people may have. Well, what about other religions? Sometimes these witchcraft uh, religions cast out spirits or prophesy or do certain kinds of things. And you Christians say that's the devil, right? We agree. Like how many know if there's a person doing witchcraft, that's of the devil, right? But then there's something good that comes out of it. Well, how could Satan do something good? He couldn't. And then you say, well, he might, you know, one, one witch doctor might cast a spell on this person, and then another witch doctor get the spell to be removed. And they'll even tell you, you know, I was cursed, and then this other spell got me uncursed. Is Satan's kingdom divided then? No, because whatever Satan does is always deception. <laughs> He is not really setting you free. He's only bringing you into deeper and deeper bondage. So what looks like Scientology is doing something good, it's actually doing something very evil. And so he's not divided against himself. He's just playing it slick. And then when you see the powers of darkness fighting each other, like Hindus oppressing Muslims and them fighting against each other, it's so that a greater darkness can come over the land. Now... We get to this point right here. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. Rachel, would you come, please? Because I want us to get this before we go. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. What were those Jewish people supposed to be doing with Jesus while he was casting out demons? They're supposed to be gathering in the people. They're supposed to be turning their synagogues into the church. 
They're supposed to be growing the church with Jesus. This is the time that they've been waiting for. And yet, they're missing it to the point where they're now going to crucify Jesus. Now, you might think to yourself, I'm telling you, this rocked me, so let's just take our time and get this. Because you might think to yourself, dude, I'm not against Jesus. Like, I'm for Jesus. But notice how he puts it. At the second part of the clause, he goes, who does not gather with me scatters. So there's two parts to this. It's not just saying, I like Jesus, which many of you would probably say, I like Jesus. So you would think you're good. No, you have to go to the next clause, which is say, I'm good with Jesus and gather with Jesus. Come on, somebody. Because can there be people who say, I'm good with Jesus, but are actually scattering Jesus' works? Yes, he will say many, he said many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these works in your name? But then he'll say, depart from me for I never knew you. So how can you be in that situation? Well, we would come into danger of that because we could be in that situation by hearing the name of Jesus all the time coming to church, saying we're for him in our words, but then in our lives actually scattering his work. Think about that. Most people don't go to church in the 21st century in America, in our culture, because of what? Hypocrites. Isn't that what you hear all the time? I hear it all the time. I'm a pastor, so, you know, I lead in with that. That's what I do for a living. What do you do? You know, I talk to them. And when they find out I'm a pastor, they go, man, I used to go to church. I don't go to church anymore. Too many hypocrites. Jesus said that the hypocrite will scatter his people. He actually said that. And I don't want us to be that. So you might think to yourself, well, pastor, how do we not be hypocrites if nobody's perfect and we sin and make mistakes? Well, number one, stop saying that because we are perfect in Christ. If you're born again, let's just change your confession to I am who God said I am. Amen? And I can do what God said I can do. And then the second thing is let us live out the commands of God and show the world what it looks like. I've had neighbors in my community, the, the same ones for about the last, uh, I think, six and a half, seven years. They would never say of Joe, Joe's a hypocrite. They may be still undecided about Christianity. They still may not want to come to the church. They may not want to do a Bible study. But that's one thing they won't say is, Joe's a hypocrite. Because they see my life in front of their children and in their home as the same way that I am as a pastor. How do I do that? Am I better than the hypocrites? Like, am I a better person? No. I've just made Jesus the Lord of my life. He's not only the Lord of my Sabbath. He's the Lord of my thoughts. He's the Lord of my Sundays and my Mondays and my Tuesdays. And if I sin, and trust me, I have sinned in front of my neighbors. <laughs> They've seen me get upset with my kids or tease my wife too much hanging out. You know, I get in trouble with that all the time. I think there's a sixth love language, the, langu the love language of teasing. And my wife doesn't always get into that. <laughs> She's not always there with me. 
So it's not being sinless that makes us gather the church or gather God's people. What makes us capable of being a gatherer and not a scatterer, if I could say it that way, is by following the commands and repenting when you don't. There is nothing worse than meeting Christians that are inconsistent with their confession. I would rather hang out with you and you confess your sin all the time than for you to pretend it doesn't exist. Why? Because the person confessing, the person saying, I know I've done wrong, the person going, I've no, I, I know I've messed up, is the one I can see God is working on. And that's always going to draw people to you. That's going to draw people to Jesus. Just think about it right here. If I was going to train you on anything, and I'm not good at much, but let's say I was going to train you on how to bike ride. And believe it or not, we have adults in this church that don't even know how to ride bikes. I wish I could name who they were, but they might get a little embarrassed. But I've taught two grown people in this church how to ride a bike. Now, when they start to get on and start tumbling over, I could say, dude, I can't relate to that. I, I ride a bike now so flawlessly. I'm so much more above you. Like one day you'll be like me. Or I can simply go, that's normal. That's, that's a part of what you're going to do. You're going to fall every now and then. It hurts when you're falling in your 30. Uh, that's why you're, you were supposed to do this when you were six or seven. But, you know, God, for, God forgive me because you got some real troubled families out there, you know. These two really didn't have a troubled family. They just didn't want to learn how to ride a bike. Tease it a little bit. That's okay. But listen, that's, that's, that's what we do. And then it draws people in. Hey, yeah, you're going to stumble a little bit. It's not going to be easy for you. It's not going to always go your way. I believe God is wanting us to gather in Chicago through our testimonies of what he's done in our lives and through our realness with them. And realness is not just brokenness all the time. It's showing how God healed broken areas of our life. Because ultimately, I don't teach them how to ride a bike by saying, well, I can't ride a bike either. Nobody else can. Look, I still fall down too. No, I don't do that. And in this example, what that would be like is, well, let's go to the bar and get drunk because that's what you relate to. And I get drunk too. And we're all sinners and then God just loves us. No. We help them ride their bike. We tell them it's natural or normal to fall at times. I have too. But then we show them what it's like to ride it straight. And I believe that starts to gather in people. Because they start to see Jesus transforming lives. And they track with you over months and over years. And then they start to say, man, I want what you got. I want a family like you have a family. I want to be at peace like how you're at peace through the storms of life. I want to have an inner confidence like how you have it. And we point them all back to the Lord of the Sabbath. Amen. Let's give it up for Jesus today. Would you stand up? Come on, let's give it up for Jesus. We love you, Lord. Let's end in prayer as we have the altar workers and band come. Thanks for joining with us today. This is our prayer time. If you're uh, needing to go, we'll dismiss in just a moment, but some are going to want to stay and get prayer. doesn't matter if this is your first time or if you've been here a hundred times. This is a time for you. This is a time for you. Let's close out first just looking at our hearts and the message, making sure it sets in, and then we'll dismiss and let some of you come up and pray, and we'd love to do that. Father, we thank you for today. We acknowledge you as the Lord of our lives. If you're here today and you haven't accepted Jesus to be the Lord of your life, would you do it right now? Simply just say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. 
Ask him into your heart. Confess any sins that you know you've done against his word and say, forgive me, change me, rearrange me. And if that's you today, when we dismiss in just a few moments, please come up and find someone to pray with you and to help you start this journey with Jesus. Now, the rest of us who would say, man, I've accepted Jesus as the Lord of my life. I'm good with that. Would you look at your heart right now and make sure that you're living it out? That you're not just saying it and then scattering all throughout the week by breaking his commands, not even caring about it. Just making excuses to stay the same. Those of us who have made Jesus the Lord of our Sabbath, the Lord of our lives, should be able to see Jesus being master and Lord in our lives. I guarantee you, you wouldn't speed if you had a police officer in your car. I guarantee you, you wouldn't, you know, talk bad about your wife or spouse if they were out to dinner with you. You see, we need to get the understanding that God is with us and he's on our conscience, teaching us, in our conscience, in our lives, teaching us. And it isn't just to point out our wrongs, it's to show us who we were made to be. A few more moments. What areas of your life need to change as you make Jesus the Lord of your life, either for the first time or the hundred and first time? Jesus, be the Lord of my words. Jesus, be the uh, the Lord over my thoughts, over my temperament. I don't want to say one thing and do another, Jesus. I don't want to scatter your church. I don't want to scatter people who are looking for you today to be the master of their life. I don't want to have anything against me that would hold them back. Let people see you in me today, Jesus. Even despite my faults and failures, let them see a God that still forgives, a God that gives second and third chances. Turn all the bad of my life to good for your glory, Lord. A few moments. Come on, who's praying prayers like that today? We'll dismiss in just a moment, but pray prayers of repentance if need be, transformation if need be. Maybe some of you have some lost loved ones in your mind, and you know you've given them bad examples. You've been scattering the testimony of Christ to them because you haven't really lived it out. Come on, repent for that and set a time in your heart to make it right. Maybe even at the barbecue this weekend. Just go up to them and say, cousin, aunt, grandma, mom, I haven't been living like I should in front of you. Would you forgive me for not being a good Christian or a good test- having a good testimony? I'm going to show you what it's like for God to forgive and change somebody. Come on, a few more moments. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Every part of it. close out today before we say amen I want you to know what Lord of the Sabbath literally means it's the Lord he's the Lord of the rest he is the rest for our souls he is the rest for our minds he is the rest for our willpower always trying to change to make ourselves better rest in God today and watch what he will do when he carries your yoke and he carries our burdens watch what he'll take you and what he'll do in your lives in Jesus name and everybody said Amen and amen. Let's give it up for the Lord. God bless you. If you need prayer, come on up and let one of these wonderful prayer workers pray for you. Otherwise, you're dismissed. Feel free.